Take some time, write it down. What's your number one goal in this life? It's uh, an important question to ask as we know that that goal will shape all of our priorities. That goal will be the filter through which everything in life is sifted. So therefore, what is your goal? And I wonder how your goal stacks up with God's goal for you in this life. God does indeed have a goal for His people, and you know what it is. It is not that you be comfortable, necessarily. It is not that you be rich, monetarily. And it is not that you get everything you want in this life. God's goal for you, Christian, is that you be like Christ. I wonder where on your list that you just wrote down falls that goal, God's goal for you here in this life. Christ-likeness is the goal that is to shape all of, all, all of our priorities. That's the filter through which we as Christians are to sift everything in life. But you know, the one thing, I think, the one thing, the thing that is hard to make sense of in relation to the goal of becoming more like Christ, is suffering. And so in the midst of suffering, right? we know that we live in a sinful world, we experience suffering, and we, in fact, cause suffering. In our suffering, we tend to lose sight of the goal. right? In, in your, if you are suffering, I wouldn't be surprised if your number one goal at this very moment is to get out of suffering. In the midst of that suffering, we get confused as to what the goal really is. Right? We, we even go on to struggle with doubt. We wonder, do I even want God and His goal for my life if it involves suffering? Well, if you're like me in our times of suffering, we really need reminders of God's love for us. Reminders that we can lean into Him and trust Him because He loves us. And that knowledge, right, knowing that God loves us, allows us to freely, therefore, and joyfully give ourselves to God's wonderful goal for our lives. Right, we know this. We know this in all sorts of different ways, right? If you, if you have ever wanted to get fit, right, you go to maybe a personal trainer or some online thing and you say, all right, program, teach me, what do I need to do? Even if that involves waking up at 4 a.m., even if that involves some degree of suffering, you are willing to get to that goal and do everything it takes to get there. Knowing that the program is good allows us to freely and joyfully submit ourselves to that goal. In this case, for the Christian, it is God's wonderful goal for our lives. That is Christ-likeness. Our passage today helps us do that. It helps us lean into God. From our passage today, we see that in our journey to being more like Christ... God calls us to lean into Him because He loves us. Our passage calls us to lean into God because He loves us. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. If you're using those black Bibles right there in front of you, you can be found on page 944. 944, Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. That, those are the, the, the specific verses that I'll be focusing on. But actually, I'm just going to go ahead and read verses 19 to 30, just so we get more of a fuller context, or 18 to 30. Go ahead and look there as I read. 
For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You know, when we're reading this letter, this New Testament letter to the Roman Christians here, we have to know that this is just like a regular letter written to us. It's like a regular letter that you would write that has a real author to real readers that has a real context. And here the context that Paul the Apostle writes into is into a context of suffering. The Roman Christians there were suffering And for good reasons, the emperor of Rome had exiled the Jewish Christians out of Rome in the mid-50s A.D. because of their faith, really. They were suffering for the faith. And then here, by the time that Paul the Apostle writes to this church, the Christians in Rome, the Christians have already returned, or at least some of them have returned, and they've already begun to form their lives once again. And little did they know, as the decades would go on, suffering would actually get worse for the faith. You see there the sufferings, if you look there in uh, Romans eight, eighteen, he says it so clearly, the, the verse that I started off on, for I consider the sufferings of this present time, those, they, the sufferings, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the hope that he's holding out there. He, he encourages suffering Christians really in Romans chapters 5 through 8 of the blessings of salvation, but really in chapter 8, that's kind of where everything climaxes here in terms of the hope that they have. If you, if you were to look there in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, it says there, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, the future glory of God, that is glorification. I'm going to explain more about what that is. So there he holds out hope, and then he returns to this idea of glory in 8.18, which I just read, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the Glory that will be revealed to us in this future. It's a day of future salvation. He has his eyes on that great goal of Christ's likeness, glorification, being with Jesus and like Jesus. And it's that goal through which everything in life is filtered, especially suffering for the faith. 
This here is the great goal. If you look there in 829, this is kind of the goal that's stated in our passage. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image or likeness of his son. Christian, did you know that God is at work in your life now, growing you in holiness or sanctification, if you want to write that down, growing in holiness, preparing you for that day of glorification? That is the day where you experience all of the blessings of salvation. Yes, we might be called to suffer for the faith, right? We live in a sinful world, the world who crucified Jesus. But thank God here, we have so many different reasons in our passage to lean into God's love, reasons that cause us to trust in Him. And today we're going to look at four reasons why suffering Christians need, can, lean into our loving God. The first one, point number one, it's because He is a God who helps. You look there in verse 26, He is a God who helps. Now keep in mind, right, this is in the context of suffering. Paul addresses the suffering Christians, reminding them of the future glory of the next world where we lay hold of all the blessings of salvation in Jesus. He's pointing our eyes to that. But he wants us to understand the present. And he says, God helps us in our weakness. Go ahead and look there, Romans 8, 26. Likewise, he basically means there, as we wait, as we wait for this day with patience, as he said in 25, he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Bible has plenty of teaching on who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does. Scripture teaches the concept of the Trinity. It's actually what Jason prayed about. It speaks of this concept of the Trinity, three persons in the one God. The persons are God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But to understand this Spirit's ministry here, as I've said in the past, we need to understand the Spirit as connected to Christ or as connected to God. So in Romans 8, verse 9, the Spirit is actually called the Spirit of Christ. It's not a Spirit disconnected from God and Jesus. It's called the Spirit of Christ and also the Spirit of God. Christ's Spirit, if you're wondering what the Spirit does, unites us to Christ, right? So He makes us one, those who repent and believe, makes us one of heart and mind with Jesus where we know salvation, we are saved. Christ's Spirit also opens our hearts, opens our eyes to believe in Christ. Christ's Spirit teaches Christ's people, Christ's Word. The Holy Spirit also makes us more like Christ. We grow in Christ-likeness. Once again, this word is sanctification. So knowing that, right, knowing all of that, it's no surprise here that it says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He's the one who helps us as we wait on Christ, who helps us conform to Christ. So you see here that God is a God of help. We are helped by the Spirit. The Spirit helps us. So we might wonder, you guys might wonder, right? I wonder, why do we need help in the first place? Why do you need help in the first place? Well, it's clear. It says because we are weak, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So just think of ourselves, right? Think of yourself. We are weak. We need help, right? Life is discouraging sometimes. And in our weakness, we lose vision. We lose purpose. We lose drive. And for so many different reasons, right? And in so many different ways and in all the different areas of our lives. This is just the standard stuff of human weakness living in a fallen world. But 
there's a more specific reason why Paul says we are weak here in this passage. Just go ahead and look there. Everything we do, we want to stick our faces in the Bible as God's word. And in it, we have everything we need for life and doctrine. So we want to look at it. Look again in 26 and 27. Paul says, likewise, or as we wait with patient endurance, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Right there, those verses, actually the very structure of those verses helps us see what our weakness is and then how the Spirit intercedes and, or how the Spirit helps us. You see there that the Spirit helps us, that's the claim, in our weakness. And then he speaks about the weakness again. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, so the Spirit intercedes for us. You see there, human weakness is that we actually don't know what to pray for in this sometimes discouraging life. Difficult life. To be more specific, it says there that we don't know what to pray for as we ought to. As we ought. Meaning, we don't always pray according to the will of God. Right? This makes sense, right? None of us have the exhaustive knowledge of God's will and so forth. Therefore, in our prayers that we herald, that we lift up, that we cry out to, right? we don't pray with 100% knowledge of what God's will is. In our suffering, right, in your suffering, maybe we think one or two steps ahead. Think of the most difficult suffering you've been in. Here he's thinking about suffering for the faith, but you could just think about suffering in general. You know, we oftentimes only think of like one, maybe two steps ahead, and even if we know what the next step is, sometimes we feel like we can't even take that step. You ever suffer like that? where our situation is so confusing to us. Friends, Paul knew suffering for the faith. Paul says in one of his letters that in the face of persecution, he despaired of life itself, right? That sounds like he knows some degree of hopelessness in that very moment. Friends, maybe you have despaired unto life itself. Sometimes in that kind of suffering, right, you feel like your chest is caving in, where your lungs feel like it, they can't even find their breath. And in those moments, right, it's hard to know what to pray for because we just don't know how things will turn out. In those moments, all your prayers are prayers of lament. Right? That's all that seems that can come out of your heart. You just lament and you wail for what the situation is. Ones where maybe all you can get out of your mouth is, God, help me. But friends, in our weakness, and in our confusion, our discouragement, our laments, we don't know what to pray for, God helps. It says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us or pleads for us on our behalf to God with groaning too deep for words. Right? So even though we might not know what to pray for in the difficulties of life, the Spirit, therefore, takes over. The Spirit of Christ who dwells in us is the one who intercedes for us, interceding in ways that we don't even comprehend or are even aware of. Now, we are going to look more at the nature, the nature of the Spirit's ministry of intercession. But before we get to that, let me first address what this ministry actually looks like. What does this look like when you say, like, whoa, Jeremy, the Spirit takes over? The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words? Like, is something going to happen to me that I don't even know exactly? Like, am I going to be 
somehow possessed or something like that. Well, some Christians think that Paul, this is just one way of understanding this, some Christians think that Paul is referring to a gift of tongues here, a gift of tongues. In there, it's you know, spoken of a gift in tongues in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> and the way that they understand, these Christians understand the gift of tongues, or at least some Christians do, is some sort of private prayer language. Some sort of private prayer language. So they read this verse and they say, okay, we don't know what to pray for. So the Spirit prays for us, through us, with audible groanings, <clears throat> unintelligible to human minds. But in short, for me, as I try and understand this passage, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. Think about it this way. I mean, when the Bible speaks of the gift of tongues, however you define that, okay? However you define the gift of tongues. When the Bible speaks of the gift of tongues, we know that it is a gift not for all Christians, right? Specific gifts for specific Christians, all for the upbuilding of the church. We are all different in our different ways. Certain gifts, certain Christians, right? So not all Christians... Uh, would have this gift of tongues. So we have to ask as we come to Romans chapter 8, is this Spirit's help of intercession for all Christians or some Christians? Like, is the Spirit's intercession only reserved for a specific few Christians? Or is Paul actually writing to all of the church in Rome and all Christians, therefore, and saying, look, the Spirit intercedes for all of us because we all don't know what to pray. Is it for all or is it for some? I think it's so clear. It is actually for all. And therefore, we shouldn't read the gift of tongues as specific for few. However, one defines that again. That could be its whole sermon series into Romans 8. I don't think that's the way to go here. <clears throat> so going back to the nature of the spiritual ministry, it is fascinating, Christian. It's fascinating. I hope you see it too. It's fascinating to see how the Spirit of God helps you in your weakness. You know, in our passage, Christians pray, but with a limited knowledge, a limited vision. Already, we should be afraid in some ways. How exactly am I going to go to God, my Father, Almighty, right? We already know that we cry out, Abba, Father, for help. How am I, how am I supposed to go to, Father, to our Father to pray down divine help if I don't even know how to pray in an informed way? We don't even know what to ask. Well, friends, in comes the spirit of help, the God of help, taking our limited prayers that are cast from our tongues and filling them up for us to God, always and in every way in the will of God, in every possible way, according to the exhaustive knowledge of God's will, all the while as God takes us to the ultimate goal of Christ's likeness. What comes out of our mouths in weakness reaches God in the fullness of his will, Every single time. That's how God intends we pray down heaven because he himself has given us divine help. Your will be done in my life and on earth as it is in heaven. Guaranteed every single time because of the Spirit. Because the Spirit filters everything through the goal of Christ's likeness. It's incredible. We, we throw up these prayers, though weak as they may be, and the Spirit takes it and says, okay, I know God's will. He is the Spirit, after all, the Spirit of God. He searches, he knows the mind of God. And then he takes those things, and even without us knowing, he sort of shapes them <clears throat> and brings them before God. <clears throat> this means, Christians, that God has our back. God has your back in relation to God's goal in ways that you don't even realize. 
You realize, Christian, that you have the Spirit of God as your prayer warrior on your side, lifting up our drooping hands, strengthening our weak knees, and reviving our frail hearts so that God's will would be done in your lives. As we grow in salvation, that's God's will. As we grow in hope, that's God's will. As we come to love Christ more and more. As we endure suffering for the sake of the gospel and showing Christ to be beautiful all the while. As we learn to think more in godly ways. As we learn to hold loosely to the stuff of the world. As we minister to others for the sake of Christ. We could just go on. All the while, the Spirit of God is our prayer warrior on our side ensuring that that goal, God's goal, would be done in our lives. That's super encouraging. You can think of Paul, for example. Paul prayed in the midst of suffering that some health issue in the letter to the Corinthians, he says that there's this health issue that he has, this thorn in his flesh, and he prays three times there that that thing would be removed. That prayer was genuine, right? Not so informed according to the ways of God's exhaustive will, but nevertheless is genuine, He did not know the full will of God, but he prayed and trusted in God's plan. And God had his back in ways that Paul didn't even realize. And in God's wisdom, God's plan was that God's power would be displayed in his weakness, his strength. God's plan was that his grace would be sufficient for Paul and that everybody would know it. That he would learn to lean and rely on God's grace. God had Paul's back in ways he didn't even realize. But here's the deal, friends. Here's the deal, non-Christian, Christian. Here's the deal. <clears throat> if you don't have the goal of loving Jesus more, right, being more like Christ, this means nothing to you. Divine help from heaven. Who gives a rip? It's like telling a vegan, here at our steak restaurants, we source our meats from cows that feed only on the beautiful grasslands of Scotland. A vegan doesn't care. And in fact, would be might be livid that you're telling him that. Or it's like you telling a criminal, you will love our country, sure. You will love our country because we have local and federal governments that are going to persecute lawbreakers, right? Is that any help for you if your goal is to rob, cheat, and steal? No. Therefore, God's help means nothing to you. You do not care that the Creator helps you even now get to what is the most important goal. In fact, Friends, you might hate the help provided because God's goal gets in the way of your goal. Now, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, God says that Christ's likeness is the most important thing we should care about. The reason being is that Christ is everything we need to be and gives us everything we need to be saved. Everything we need to have a right relationship with God. Christ-likeness is such a big deal because all people are born against Christ. We have all traded in the glory of God and have chosen to live for self, the God and goal of self-exaltation. And we do this in all sorts of different ways. It might look different for every single one of us. In effect, we have, in our rejection of God, We have chosen to be our own gods. And Romans says that we have all fallen short of the glory of God and have earned for ourselves condemnation. Because, of course, we as citizens can't go up against the one and only king. That would be like treason. We have now earned for ourselves God's eternal judgment. This is, though, the reason why God sent Christ. 
He loved His created people so much, even though they had rebelled, that He pursued them in giving them Jesus. He doesn't want sinners to die. He doesn't. And so in His grace, in His love, and His mercy, He provides for them a perfect and righteous substitute that is Christ the Son, the one who stands in the place for sinners as a substitute, right? So on the cross, where we should have died and bore God's wrath, Christ dies in our stead. He is the one who bears the wrath that we deserve. So we would not have to, but instead we would be together with God. He alone, Jesus alone is the one who can do this because he alone is the righteous one. He is everything we need to be. Remember that? And now for those who turn to God, turn from their sins and to God in Christ by faith, we are given Christ's righteousness, so therefore we can be, have fellowship with God, who is righteous. Right? He has those demands upon those who rebel against him that we need to be righteous. And so he sends Jesus Christ to die in our place so that he would count us righteous, or at least all those who would turn and believe upon him. And so we are justified, right? Those who believe on him are declared righteous because God wants us in his presence. He declares us righteous. That's the only way he's going to have fellowship with those who rebel against him. He declares us righteous in His sight. We are forgiven of our sin. We are forgiven. We are saved. We are reconciled to God. And then there's this beautiful family aspect. We are adopted into His family where we know Him as Father. We are heirs of God. In other words, He is our God and we are His children. We are even heirs of Christ. We have Christ. He is our Savior. And so we are sons of God adopted in the Son of God. Sons of God in the Son of God, which we've spoken about before. Before, And now we wait for that glorious hope when we will see one day when Christ returns, as the Bible teaches, we see our Savior, our King, our Lord, face to face. That's the hope here of glory, the hope of glory, because we have Christ as Lord. And again, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, Christ calls you to turn from your sins and believe on him, and you will be saved, adopted into his family, reconciled to God. You know him as father, and you will see his face, not as one that's towards you in wrath, but one that's towards you in love. Right? So you understand that for any of this stuff about the hope of glory, seeing Christ return, us raised from the dead, where we then will be underneath the reign and rule of God, for any of that to make sense, For any of that glorification stuff to make sense, being like Christ stuff, you first have to get right with God and embrace His plan for your life. And when that happens, then all of this stuff about the Spirit helping you in your weakness becomes like honey to your lips, medicine to the soul, because it proves that God is committed to loving sinners and saving them and remaining with them in our time of need. God helps. And friends, he has our back in ways that we don't even realize. That's where our passage goes to, once again, in verse 27. So not only can we lean into God who helps, we can also lean into God because he knows. This is point number two. We can lean into God because he knows. Look there in verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is all according to the will of God. God has our back in ways don't even, we don't even realize. So the Spirit pleads on our behalf with full knowledge of the will of God and God knows the mind of the Spirit. Doesn't that encourage you guys? Sometimes you might wonder like, I don't even know what to pray for. I don't even know myself well enough to pray accurately. 
And he already said, well, the Spirit, he prays with full knowledge of God's will, bringing our prayers to the Father. But then we might wonder, well, does the Spirit really get all of them to God? Like all of our prayers? In God's exhaustive knowledge, do they all get up to God? He says, yes. God knows the mind of the Spirit. We know that he searches hearts, right? God is a God who searches hearts, says that in the Psalms. But he's also the God who knows the mind of the Spirit. And all of this is according to the will of God. God has designed this very plan to work like this so that weak Christians would have help in our time of need. So you just think about all, the, all of God's people here on earth. You guys. Facing situations and your suffering. Praying prayers of lament. Praying prayers of confession in our time of need. Prayers of invocation that God would be glorified. Praying prayers of praise. Friends, the Spirit not only knows all of these prayers and everything else in relation to them, but He knows exactly what we need according to the will of God. And just as God keeps every single one of you, so the Spirit preserves every single prayer that comes from every single one of His sheep. Every single detail, as God is moving you to the great goal of Christ's likeness, not one of them is lost. God knows them all. Every single facet of your life, God is mindful of them. He hears the prayers. He preserves them. The fact that God knows the mind of the Spirit and therefore knows our needs should bring us freedom in prayer, doesn't it? Should bring us freedom in prayer. We're seeking to apply the passage here. Freedom in prayer is what ought to result knowing that God knows the mind of the Spirit. The fact that it is God's will that the weak be helped you be helped, means that it's good to pray from a posture of weakness. It is okay, Christians, to acknowledge a lack of knowledge about the will of God and a lack of knowledge about yourself. Listen to how David prays in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. He says there, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Of course, does God already know David's heart? Yes, he does. It's, he's asking God to search him and know him and try him. He goes on to say, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in a way everlasting. Does God know the mind of David? Yes. He's praying that so that his own heart would be exposed to himself so that he might confess, he might live, he might consecrate himself, all sorts of different ways. That's how, that's how David prays. So Christians, do your prayers reflect that you don't always see clearly Praying that God would search you and expose what is in your heart so that you would know the will of God in some aspect of your oftentimes confusing life. Well, the people who hear you pray, do they know you to pray in weakness? Do they know that you pray thinking that it's okay not to know sometimes? Another application point. Knowing that God knows exactly what we need in light of His will should move us to pray with eager expectation. If God has our back in ways we don't even realize, it means that God is going to do something tremendous as He moves us to that great grand goal of Christ-likeness. Paul has, God has things planned that we could never expect or imagine. Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, invites us to lean into this eager expectation in our prayer. Listen to him. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. 
He says that God will do far more than we know how to even ask and far more than we even think about. So we might not know how to even think about something or pray about something, but yet the Spirit says, I know, I know, and I'm going to bring those things to the Father. So what might come out of your mouth is just, God, help me. Spirit comes along and says, I know, I'm going to take it to the Father. Because the Spirit wants for you, of course, what God wants for you, because the Spirit is God. You see even His person here, His personhood. There's the mind of the Spirit. Every person in the Trinity is excited that you look more and more like Jesus Christ. So it is good to pray out of weakness, because God is powerful. And we can pray simply relying on God to act. This is really helpful for us, especially in times of confusion and despair. In my opinion, it seems like we, therefore, ought to have all the more confidence to go to God, even if our prayers are short. Even if our prayers are short. And here, I think, is the wonderful blessing of praying through Scripture. Praying through Scripture. If you want to know more about what this is, you can talk to Oscar, talk to myself. We can happily point you to uh, different resources about praying through Scripture. We oftentimes do it, and Jason did it for us earlier this morning. But if you are in your time of need, I want you to jot down these, these verses here. Psalm 86, verse 1. Psalm 86, verse 1. Right? So if you are super confused about what's going on, maybe you're suffering for the faith or suffering in general, listen to this. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Sometimes maybe that's all you can get out of your mouth because you feel like you are so gut wrench. Here's another one. Psalm 119, verse 30, 133. Psalm 119, verse 133. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. And let no iniquity get dominion over me. Praying for God to help us as we battle sin. Psalm 79, verse 8. Psalm 79, verse 8. This is pleading the mercies of God. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. There you see, he wouldn't be praying in such a tender-hearted way if God were not the tender Father. Psalm 16, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 16, verses 1 and 2. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Those are just some examples of what it is that we can pray about and pray to God. And we don't have to have everything worked out because the Spirit already does. In every aspect of our lives, even in suffering, we can trust God to work out all things for our good according to the grand plan of Christ's likeness. We see that we can, learn, we can lean into God because He is a first God of help, second, He is a God who knows, and then point three, because he is a God who works, because he is a God who works. We can lean into this God because he is a God of help, he is a God who knows, and because he is a God who works. Look there at verse 28. This is where the passage is going. He says on the heels of 27, verse 28 there, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's incredible that he tells suffering Christians who are suffering for the faith, All things work together for your good. What does he mean right there? Well, he is certainly not saying that evil things turn out to be good things inherent of themselves. That is not the case. 
There are plenty of passages where God says that things like injustice and other things are straight up evil things. Immorality, God says, is wicked. And those who call evil good are themselves wicked. So it can't mean that evil things become inherently good. That's not what he means here. I think, well, I mean, what the passage says is that all things work together for good. All things work together for good, as in all things turn out for the Christian's good. All things turn out for the Christian's good. Now, again, if you're exploring Christianity here, do not think that he's talking about, you know, it's all good mentality or the power of positive thinking that Oprah sells on daytime television. You've got to hear when he says that all things work for the Christian's good, all things turn out there. You've got to hear that verse in the context of God's deep and abiding love for His people. His sovereign working is one of love for His people. He wants them to know that God Almighty loves them and is preserving them by His sovereign power for His grand goal. And we know that He is the one who works. This love comes across in the words there for those who are called according to His purpose. The language of called calls to mind the fact that God sets His covenant love upon a chosen people and that that love never forsakes, it never abandons, it always comes through. And for those whom God has set His love upon, all things work for their good because He's over them all. Now when He says for those who love God, all things work together for good, you know, okay, so don't think, don't come away thinking that He's talking about how to get good from God. Right, so some of you guys exploring Christianity, you might think, well, how do I get, have a better life? Well, God is, uh, let's say, my slave boy. And if I just work him a certain way, then he's going to make sure, like the little guy he is, like the little elf he is, he's going to make sure that my life is the way that I want it to be. And so I'm going to love God, my little elf, and I'm going to get good. That's not the way that the Bible understands God at all or human beings. He's not talking about how to get God to work out everything for your good as defined by you. Paul is reaffirming struggling Christians of the benefit of being a child of God. He's already talking about how God's love is poured into our hearts in Romans chapter 5. He's already talked about that the Spirit, by the Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father, in love, asking Him for help. And he says, look, you who love God, you Christians. It's another way of describing Christians, those who love God, for those who love God. He says, God works out everything for your good. There is benefit. There is true benefit under the sovereign hand of a loving God. He helps. He knows. He's working all things out for your good. And it's according to His purposes. All things will turn out for your good. Do you believe that, Christian? All things. I'm guessing you're going to say that you do believe those things. I'm guessing you do believe it in everything you face, that there are ways that you can always grow to love Christ more, to be like Christ more, to represent Christ more, to boast in Christ more. Right? Let's just call that Christ-likeness, and then ultimately glorification, be like Christ. Of course, we know that. I mean, if we don't say that, we'd basically be saying, you know what, in all areas of my life, Christ is already known by my friends and family and my workmates to be sufficient for me. They know without a shadow of a doubt that, uh, that Christ is more than my reputation, that Christ is more than my comfort and my career and my money and my security and my family and my life. Everyone already knows that. 
And in all ways, they know that God's grace is sufficient for me. No problem. I mean, who can say that? None of us can say that. Of course, we want to say that we know that all things turn out for our good as defined by God, grand goal, Christ-likeness. But I'm guessing, Christian, you believe still that you could look a little bit more like Christ. But it's the whole suffering bit that discourages us. It's that whole suffering thing as it fits in the grand goal that kind of puzzles us. But Christian, if God's will is truly your will, then we can, in fact, face all things, knowing God intends to fortify, to clarify, to refine your faith in Him through all things. We learn this in James chapter 1, the reason for trials is that our uh, faith would be refined, that we might look more like Jesus, right? This is His purpose. And we are called here to lean into God's working according to His plans and purposes. This is point number four here. We're called to lean into God who plans and who purposes. Verses 29 to 30. Go ahead and look there. Actually, I'll go ahead and start in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is a lot there. Paul unpacks here what God's purposes are. You already mentioned it in 28, the purposes. Now he unpacks all of these purposes. He speaks about Christians as objects of God's love and salvation. Objects of God's love and salvation. And remember, he's trying to encourage suffering Christians. We know earlier in Romans chapter 8, that God sort of set us on the sideline and He said, look, you suffering Christians, we understand that our present momentary affliction doesn't compare to anything compared with the glory that is to come. And then He sets Christians on the sideline. He says, look at creation. All of God's creation waits with eager longing for the adoption of the sons of God, for the revealing of the sons of God. And we're just supposed to look at it and think like, wow, you are right. But now here He encourages us in a different way. He puts us underneath the sovereign hand of a loving God. And he says, look, you want to be encouraged? Look what God has done and will do for you all because he loves you. Verses 29 and 30 here are a highlight reel of the love of God in salvation for you, Christian. They're supposed to secure you. They're supposed to anchor you in the times of suffering. Specifically here, suffering for the faith, but in general, suffering in general. We're supposed to find ourselves as held in the sovereign hand of a loving God who saves. So yes, you might be going through a present and momentary affliction, but what he does in verses 29 and 30, he backs us up so that we could see things from before creation all the way into eternity future. And that's how we come to know that our momentary afflictions don't compare at all to the glory that is to be revealed Because God loves us. Look at these terms. He really lays it out in terms of past, present, and future. He starts with God's love for His people before time. He says that that God foreknew and predestined. And we're going to come to those terms there. I know they can be big terms. You want to write them down. You should take notes. I think that's a good and useful, helpful thing to do. He says they're foreknew and predestined. But what's the purpose? 
Once again, the grand purpose there is that we might be conformed to the image of His Son or the likeness of His Son, that He, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, Paul already has Jesus's glorification in mind and our glorification in Christ in mind. He has our end in mind. When Christ returns, we are raised from the dead, as the Bible teaches, and we are at one with God. God dwells with us. He is our God, and we are His people. In the end, final salvation, finished. Heaven, worshiping God. We know Paul has the end in mind there. He speaks of Christ being the firstborn among many brothers. You might be wondering, what does that mean? When you read their firstborn, you should think also of the first fruits. First fruits of the dead, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. And adopted sons of God are following in the footsteps of the Son of God. He went into the grave that is suffering, and he rose again that is glory. And we, as his followers, we certainly know that we will die. And God tells us that we will be raised in the likeness of Jesus Christ. As he was glorified, so you too, Christian, you Christian, will be with him in glory, suffering and then glory. So it says there that God foreknew and he predestined you, Christian, for that even before time began. He knew you. He was aware of you. He had plans to save you. This term foreknown doesn't simply mean that God sees and foreknows in the future. I mean, there are a couple times in Scripture where it does indeed mean that, just simple foreknowledge. But this term foreknown is actually tied to the Old Testament word of know. God knows us. And it actually describes this unique relationship where God loves a chosen people. It describes that God has a special purpose for his people. Listen to Jeremiah 1 verse 5. He says to Jeremiah, and here this this aspect of knowing uh, um, conveys also that God sets a people apart. He says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. He set them apart for his use. Amos 3, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, the Old Testament Israel there is a people whom God knew of all the nations of the earth. But is he saying that like, does God not know about all the other nations of the earth? Of course not. He knows everything. But he knows Israel. He knows his chosen people in a unique way. So for Paul to say that God foreknew you, Christian, is to remind us that God has entered into a covenant relationship with you. He says that even before you were in existence, even before the creation of the world, God knew you and loved you. He goes on to say that those whom he foreknew, he predestined. This too speaks of a love of God. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that God predestined Christians, his people, in love. So think about an illustration this way, right? Foreknowledge. The illustration here is a family one, one of a parent to a child perhaps, or a parent, or a man or woman that wants to adopt a child. One sets his love upon an orphan, right? Enters into a covenant parenthood relation, parent-child relationship with an orphan. That's foreknowledge in a biblical sense. They know we want that particular, we want to adopt that particular child. Predestination, though, highlights the fact that all of the parents' preordained plans to love that child and bring them into the family, to shower them with love, resources, etc., will indeed be carried out. In terms of the church, well, those whom God enters into covenant with are those he guarantees to save. And all this he does before time, foreknowledge, predestination, all before the creation, Ephesians 1 says. God knows what he's doing, and he knows what he's doing in your life, even in the midst of suffering. 
Then Paul moves into the present. He says, okay, look, God loved you in the past. God loved you before you were born, even before creation went on. And then he says, look at the present. God loves you even now. Those whom he predestined, he also called. What's encouraging here is that those God calls are those who definitively are gathered to himself. Now, there's a sense in which there is a general call of the gospel, right? Jesus goes around preaching, repent and believe, that goes out to everybody, but not all come to him. So in this sense, not all are called. In this sense, the called are the foreknown, the called are the predestined. And we see later on that the called are the saved. This type of call actually brings about their salvation. Right? So if you're a Christian... You're supposed to be cradled in the love of God throughout time as you understand your present momentary afflictions here. You have been called, you have been summoned by a loving God and given a new spirit and united to Jesus Christ and you have been saved. Friends, that's what happened when you became a Christian. He says, hey, you remember that time when you were saved, when you became a Christian? Maybe when you realized that you were so brought to your end where you knew that all the stuff that you were hoping in the world fails you, and then you return to see Jesus Christ who never does fail you. And then at that time you are saved. That's God's calling in your life. And he says, look, even then, God was with you, working all things out for your good. See what he's doing there? Past, before creation, even then God loved you. And it was working all things out for your salvation. Present, even though you suffer, God calls you. We understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. We repent and believe. And even then, in all the stuff that went on there, God was working all things out for your good according to His purposes. Because He loves you. And then when you believe by faith in Christ, you see there, He goes on, God justified you present tense. You were not righteous. In fact, you were unrighteous, yet Christ shed his very own blood so that you would not have to. But instead, you were saved. You were counted or declared righteous by faith in him. In the crucifixion of the Son, Christian, God loved you. How's that for commitment, his steadfast love that we read about earlier? All because he desires that you be saved and that you be with him. And then he moves to the future. He says, okay, look, God loved you in the past. God loves you in the present. God's going to love you in the future. The final end of this golden chain of salvation, those whom God justified, he also glorified. Even then, Christian, in the future, God will pledge, has pledged, and will fulfill his love for you. You might be suffering now, but friends, God loves you from before creation in the details of your life to bring you to himself in salvation and into the future where it never ends, where final salvation we will comprehend and where we will finish the race and are with Jesus Christ. God loves us. It is glory, but through suffering. Did you notice there that, that though glorification is future, Paul speaks of it in the past tense. He has glorified. He speaks about it with such certainty, knowing that God brings everything he starts to completion, all because he loves us. Might we suffer for our faith? Yes. Friends, there is final glory on the other side, and because he loves us, we therefore can lean into him in our weakness. Christian, he always has loved you, and he always will love you. As we conclude, church, knowing that God is at work according to his plan, 
Friends, here this enables us to rest in His love for us. He will indeed bring us to the hope of future glory where we will realize, where we will know and embrace full salvation. And no matter what suffering we may be experiencing for the name of Christ, or even suffering in general, we need not fear because we have God on our side. The sovereign one who helps, the all-knowing one who knows, the powerful one who unceasingly works for our good, and the all-wise one who plans and purposes all the way from before creation, all the way into glorification. And so therefore, in the face of suffering, we look at the next verse in Romans 8.31. And it says there, if God is for us, friends, who can be against us? He has pledged His love to us, and He will make due on His promises. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, you are our good God. We recognize that sometimes we don't even realize this or we forget about it, that you are good, that you have our best interest in mind in all things, that you have this goal and that you are indeed working all things out for our good. Lord, we pray that You would give us faith. You would give us more faith so that in the midst of suffering, suffering for your name or suffering in general in this sinful world, Lord, that always your goodness would be right in front of our faces. We thank you, Lord, that we can, in fact, lean into you. And indeed, you want us to. So, Lord, help us know and help convict us about why we don't. Reveal our unbelief. Search us and try us so that we might know where we fall short, where we don't see so clearly because we are weak. And Lord, we pray that indeed we would cry out, Abba, Father, that we would call out to you for help. We know, Lord, that you have given us the greatest thing that is your very eternal Son, Jesus Christ. Surely you will give us everything else because you love us. We pray, Lord, that by the Spirit, even right now, in ways that we don't even realize that we ought to be praying for, in ways in which we don't know the will of God so clearly, Lord, we ask that the Spirit of God would take our prayers to you. And, Lord, we pray that we would be comforted knowing that your will will be done in our lives. You have searched our hearts. God the Father, you know the mind of the Spirit. We know, Lord, too, that by your Spirit we come to know divine comfort. Reveal to us your will. Reveal to us ways in which we need to grow more into your likeness. We pray that all, in all things you would be our glorious hope. We thank you for the love of God that preserves us all the way to the end. In your name we pray. Amen.